presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. It's been two and a half months since the governor first declared a public health emergency because of COVID-19. And though we're entering phase four of reopening the state, some Idahoans are still struggling with unemployment and isolation. This week, we discuss those lingering problems and how some are trying to help. I'm Melissa Davlin, Idaho Reports starts now. Hello and welcome to Idaho Reports. This week we talked to Brooke Curtis about issues Idahoans are facing while waiting for unemployment benefits. Then Dr. Chris Daniels of Hope and Recovery in Pocatello talks about how isolation and added stress is affecting Idahoans who struggle with addiction. But first, on Thursday, Governor Brad Little held a press conference to announce that the state is entering phase four of reopening Idaho. This stage allows nightclubs and sports venues to open with social distancing and safety protocols in place. Notably, it also allows for limited controlled visits to nursing homes. This comes as the Idaho Department of Health and Welfare reported Friday that of Idaho's 85 reported COVID-related deaths, 53 were tied to nursing homes and 12 facilities across the state still have unresolved outbreaks. At the press conference, Governor Little stressed that while the state is opening up, the virus isn't gone. I want to stress something very important. We almost did not make it to stage four this week. Despite our incredible progress, there are still some in Idaho who are not practicing measures to keep themselves and others safe. Even if contracting COVID-19 is low on your personal concerns, I urge you to practice safe measure, measures to protect others. Community spread is occurring in more than half of the counties in our state. This isn't just a Boise and Treasure Valley issue. Across the country, we're seeing the virus move from cities into rural areas where healthcare access is limited. Our focus all along has been to prevent our healthcare facilities from being overrun in, this, in a short period of time. Something that would have had a devastating effect on our lives and our economy. The most effective way to mitigate the spread of virus is through our personal actions. Practice physical distancing, wash hands and surfaces regularly, wear protective face coverings in public where appropriate, and stay home if you're sick. Earlier this week, we unveiled the new One Idaho Initiative to educate the public on the importance of practicing these measures so we can continue our economic rebound. Our actions moving forward will help preserve the sacrifice we all made early on and continue to make to slow the spread of the coronavirus in our state. I encourage businesses and individuals to go to one.idaho.gov and make the One Idaho Pledge. I'm confident that with the continued support of all Idahoans, 
our economic rebound will happen more quickly and more robustly than any other place in the country and the world. Later that day, Central District Health, which covers Ada County, among others, announced that 10 people who either tested positive or are presumed positive for COVID-19 had visited six downtown Boise bars last Friday and Saturday and likely exposed several other customers to the virus. CDH recommends anyone who spent time in the area of 6th and Main in Boise on June 5th and 6th monitor themselves for symptoms of the virus. Meanwhile, another cluster of COVID-19 was reported in eastern Idaho this week with 30 reported cases tied to a religious revival in Idaho Falls in late May. All of this to emphasize the pandemic still isn't over and the virus is still highly contagious. At the press conference, the governor said that the next step is dependent upon what happens next with the virus and that going back to previous stages is a possibility. He also left the door open for a region by region approach instead of blanket uh, statewide shutdowns like we've seen previously. For more information on stage four, visit rebound.idaho.gov. Two and a half months after the first statewide shutdown, a number of unemployed Idahoans are still waiting for unemployment checks. This week, one woman compiled a list of dozens of anecdotes from people around the state who have gone without payments for weeks, then sent that letter to the governor and the Department of Labor. Some of those claims were directly because of the pandemic, while others had regular claims that were wrapped up in the tide of COVID-related unemployment filings. On Thursday, I talked to Brooke Curtis about the letter she sent to state officials. Thank you so much for joining us today. Can you tell me about the letter that you sent to the governor and the Department of Labor? Um, I put together a letter uh, to the governor, uh, one of the executive assistants and the director of the Department of Labor, um, basically outlining the situation with unemployment and listing, I think there was close to 100 people in that email. Um, and their individual situations in a very short manner. Um, if I could go on and on for days on each one of those individuals, I'm sure. Um, but it was an overall, we need something to happen. We need something to be fixed. Um, Idahoans are getting very desperate. Um, and you know, we're Idaho, we shouldn't be in this situation. Uh, we look to the governor for leadership and I don't feel like um, we've gotten that to some extent in with, with unemployment. You put yourself in that letter in your own situation. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, I did. I, and quite honestly, had my situation or my claim already been handled by now, I still would have sent that letter and just not included my own situation. Um, it, you know, I was laid off in February. Well, I wasn't laid off. I was discharged from a job um, by a general manager that kind of had it out for employees. Um, I originally filed my claim in February. I was told I was monetarily ineligible, that I needed to let my claim expire and refile at the beginning of the quarter so that I would be monetarily eligible. Um, and to go into short detail on that, they basically had not received my wages from Oregon. I live in Fruitland, so I'd worked across the border for a little bit and they had not received those. Even though they had not received those, I was still monetarily ineligible. Um, I went ahead, let my claim expire. I refiled at the beginning of the quarter between letting my claim expire in the beginning of the quarter. Um, all of the shutdowns happened, this virus hit, 
Um, the system was overloaded by the time I refiled. I thought I would probably wait a short time, but I never expected to be here nine weeks later um, from that second claim and still not have any answers. And you also compiled so dozens and dozens of other people's stories. As you were putting together those anecdotes, did any of them stand out to you? Um, several of them did. Uh, one lady has a story that is just heartbreaking. She's got an infant that's on prescription formula and prescription foods, um, and they've maxed out their credit cards. They've spent every dime they have. Um, I believe she said the amount for those prescriptions was about $1,700 a month, and that's not their only child. Um, and just in a very desperate situation, just to feed your child. Um, you know, I, there was another gentleman who is homeless and sleeping in his car. Um, I, I don't know if he, how he's been able to keep his car, if it's paid off, but that's just still a really sad situation. Um, there was another news story about a gentleman who was panhandling because he's waiting for unemployment. There are several people on the verge of losing their homes. Um, there's one young lady who is on day 29 or maybe even 30 now with a 30 day notice to get out of her home. Several people have already moved into cheaper homes or in with family members, um, lost vehicles. It just, it's on and on and on. You know, and, and you mentioned the employees in the governor's office and the Department of Labor. You've heard the press conferences and the interviews with the governor and the director, both saying that they have been inundated with claims. What solution, what outcome besides back payments would you like to see? Um, well, in, in my opinion, um, you know, I'm kind of a poop rolls uphill type of person in these situations. Um, I think there needs to be major change within the Department of Labor. I think that um, we need to look at the very real possibility that we could be in this position again if this virus decides to roll back around in the fall, as people are predicting. Um, I, I don't necessarily um, know where those changes should be made, but I do know that the people of this state deserve better from the people that they look to for leadership. Um, I believe that this directly falls on the inability to um, keep on your toes and change with the changes in time. Um, and we should have been prepared for situations like this long ago. You mentioned in your letter that people are getting desperate. What worries you most long-term as you're looking at, at these people in these situations? You know, um, what, um, I see happening is a lot of um, is a lot of people losing their homes. Um, you know, people losing their homes and people losing their jobs and they stop spending money. That will kill the economy far more than shutting down businesses for three or four weeks. Um, I, I think that our economy has has taken a hit from all of this, but I think those people trying to put their lives back on track and we're talking uh, over a hundred thousand people. Um, that's going to take far longer than getting a business reopened or getting a movie theater reopened. All right. Well, Brooke, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I appreciate it. Curtis added that she had spoken to people in the Department of Labor and the governor's office who have been helpful. Meanwhile, the Department of Labor continues to add more capacity to deal with the unresolved claims, including hiring more adjudicators and 20 new claims benefit specialists, as well as reassigning 55 existing employees and adding 60 more lines to their phone banks. 
When asked about the wait on Thursday, Governor Little took responsibility on behalf of the federal and state governments. Uh, yes, the state and federal government did fail. I readily admit that. I will tell you that we put um, people, uh, we put training, we put hardware, we put software, we put a call center, uh, we're changing rules, we're changing management. Uh, yesterday, I had two different meetings about it yesterday. We believe we're on a pathway uh, to, and I don't want to commit, uh, we believe we're on a pathway to have all these addressed in, uh, in a matter of weeks. And the numbers we were looking at two weeks ago was a matter of months. So uh, we made progress. I know that people are getting the benefits. The call center when it first started out just got absolutely slammed. Uh, the, the call center did. And, and a lot of these issues have to go to the federal level. Uh, there's guidance, mixed guidance coming from the federal government about how we confirm uh, uh, these, the employment of these people, uh, the, the people that, that are making the claims. There's the traditional unemployment who are in our system, and then there's the new uh, people, the pandemic uh, uh, program that aren't in our system. We have to build a whole new file on them. Originally, the Fed said, oh, just let them self-certify and send the money out. Then they came back and said, don't. That's part of the problem. But, but Scott's question about did the system fail? Yes, it was overloaded. Uh, but Congress wanted to get this money out as fast as they could. Labor asked that it not be. They knew that all the state labor departments were going to be overridden, but they had to put it somewhere. But I would say, yeah, the system failed. We have every intent of having it fixed. But I, my heart goes out to those people. Whether stressed because of unemployment, isolation, or concerns about the virus, the burdens of the last few months are especially felt by those who already struggle with depression or substance use disorders. On Thursday, I asked whether the state is tracking recent behavioral health data and what's being done for Idahoans in need. Most of you are aware uh, we instituted a behavioral health council, which is the executive branch the judicial branch and, and the legislative branch to look at the totality of, of uh, behavioral health issues. Uh, I emphasized to our opioid uh, working group yesterday about how important uh, their input is into uh, some of the activities we have. We know uh, that there's more stress uh, in a lot of areas, but, and, and maybe uh, Dave can respond to this, one of the things that has been a if there are any benefits, is our delivery of, of remote health care, of telehealth, and, and, and the delivery of telehealth in the behavioral health area. I was a bit of a skeptic, uh, but the evidence is compelling about how much, uh, how effective uh, the delivery of telehealth is. As you're aware, you may be aware, a lot of our uh, uh, telehealth was because I waived some uh, rules at the state level and the federal government waived some rules. We're trying to aggregate those rules so that when we get out from under the emergency order, we can continue with the efficacy of that. Uh, clearly, the pandemic has created extra stress on everyone, uh, including all of us here in this room, actually. And uh, that's led to an increase, uh, as far as we can tell, in certainly anxiety and potentially depression and other behavioral health issues. Uh, it's something we've been concerned about from the very beginning. Um, we do track the 
the death data, and it clearly any, in, even one suicide, there's too many suicides in the state. But we actually have seen a slight decline in suicides over the last couple of months, which is, is, is surprising to us, but a good thing. We'll take that whenever we can get that. Uh, we do continue to monitor the health of individuals. Uh, we have stood up a crisis health, health line that's staffed by the um, Behavioral Health Division at uh, the department. It's 24-7, and individuals can access that uh, either through 211 or through the, uh, the coronavirus uh, 800 hotline, or it might be 88, but the coronavirus hotline that's on the website. Um, and that's available for individuals that may need access to immediate help or a direction to services that are available. Uh, through, as the governor mentioned, um, throughout the pandemic, through his uh, executive order action and waiving of rules, we've been able to greatly expand the use of telehealth. Uh, I was just looking at that data this morning, and for behavioral health, uh, the same time period, this is in Medicaid, uh, um, for the same time period, March, April, and May, Last year, we had roughly about 450 telehealth visits. Uh, the, uh, the, in this last period of time, we've had 53,000 telehealth visits in the last three months. Uh, and that's actually expanded to include substance abuse uh, as well as just not, not just your normal counseling. So uh, we will get back to both telehealth and normal visits as appropriate. Uh, it's very important to us to stay on top of helping the citizens of Idaho manage the behavioral health side of this, um, and we'll continue to focus on that. Also Thursday, I spoke to Dr. Chris Daniels of the Hope and Recovery Clinic in Pocatello about what issues his clients are experiencing as they focus on recovery from addiction while in isolation. Thank you so much for joining us today. Can you tell me how stressful situations can affect the risk for substance use disorders? Sure, I'd be happy to address that. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the fundamentals with respect to substance use disorders is that um, as a recovered alcoholic myself, I guess I can speak from personal experience, you know, we've chosen that path as a solution to the problems and issues and stresses in our lives. And uh, over time, it clearly obviously evolves into um, what may have started as a recreational sort of approach into a very serious substance use disorder problem that disrupts and, and completely uh, turns our lives upside down. Um, it's not easy to break away from that particular solution immediately. It takes time, it takes work, and obviously 12-step um, programs are a part of that solution. Therapy and treatment are part of that solution. Um, and um, personal interaction and fellowship support that comes from the groups that uh, provide support for people that are working into recovery are important. So a situation like when COVID-19 erupts, um, it caught a lot of people by surprise, obviously, and that provides a significant stress. Then you also have the issue that people lost their jobs. And so their income went to zero. They all of a sudden are not able to fund um, a lot of the uh, basic living sort of situations that they're having. And you know the, the stress can be quite significant. So how does social interaction play into recovery and in what you do at your clinic? Sure, let me, let, let me, let me tell you a little bit about what Hope and Recovery Resource Center does. Um, so Hope and Recovery Resource Center is a peer-based recovery support services organization we don't do any treatment here. We don't have professional treatment providers or anything like that. We work hand in hand as part of the continuum of care 
for people that are in recovery and receiving treatment. And so we have a lot of peer-based support here. Uh, we have several uh, employees, most, mostly part-time. Uh, so all of the hard work here and all of the heavy lifting actually is carried by the peer volunteers, people that are in recovery, that are coming to Hope and Recovery. They found a solution here for their uh, social support and also the services and activities and things that we provide. So people that come to Hope and Recovery are interacting a lot, providing a lot of support for each other. And, and that interpersonal interaction, that, that social interaction is so important. Um, as I said before, um, and as you mentioned, isolation is, is a huge issue with respect to uh, driving substance use and addiction. We tend to isolate ourselves away from general society. We're in a situation that actually perpetuates the problem itself, whether that's hanging out with a group of people that are using drugs or spending your day you know, sitting on a bar stool. Um, so we provide an alternative. Um, COVID-19, when it interrupted, caught us by surprise. Uh, I think it caught everybody by surprise. And the sudden isolation that people had to experience really impacted a lot of people. Now, I will say that while it impacted a lot of people in a very negative way because you know, people did get stressed out, they fell back into old patterns, they relapsed. We have a lot of people that have just really stepped up to the plate too. Um, they've jumped into their recovery and they've been helping their fellows, reaching out, doing interactions um, and interacting in, in, in um, electronic uh, pathways now you know, with uh, a, lot of, a lot of different um, opportunities that have become available as this uh, kind of evolved. Is video teleconferencing like this as effective when it comes to that peer support as say a Narcotics Anonymous group or an AA meeting? Um, it is an excellent alternative, but it certainly isn't a replacement. Um, I, I was skeptical and a lot of people, um, Hope and Recovery has been doing, we switched from in-person meetings to online meetings like this um, fairly quickly. Um, and, and people stepped up and are able to utilize it. On, on the downside, um, a lot of people just didn't like it. A lot of people come around uh, as an alternative. If it's the only alternative to be able to have personal interactions, I guess it, it works. But for me, from a personal basis, um, one of the things that I found was that um, attending a meeting in person, you have sort of that spiritual energy of people that are all in the boat together um, that is present in that meeting in, in person. And when you walk out the door, you really carry that with you. Um, that, that's hard to develop on an online kind of meeting like this. Is there also a concern that in isolation people are using which might up the risk for dangerous overdose uh, and potentially deadly overdose situations? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, with the uh, people that are uh, abusing opioids, um, if you are isolated, um, you, and we found, for instance, that um, because of job loss and lack of income, um, we have maintained a very uh, active phone tree with people. We make a lot of uh, 
daily connection calls with people just checking up, seeing how people are doing. Um, a lot of people lost their phone service um, because they weren't able to pay their um, monthly um, phone bill. And so their cell service was terminated. And you know, just being able to follow up on people is an important part of that. Um, particularly if you find that people are starting to stress, you know that they're potentially falling back and using opioids in particular where the overdose problem is a real significant problem. Um, so yeah, I, I think the isolation and has, has been a contributor to people's falling off. You know, when you communicate with the, with the healthcare providers that you interface with at Hope and Recovery, what sort of things are you hearing about other trends besides the opioid use? Are, are you seeing an increase in alcohol dependence and, and that sort of thing? Oh, I, yeah, I think absolutely across the board, it's, it's, been, it's been a problem. Um, most providers that I know had uh, not been able to continue face-to-face -face meetings, and so they had worked to switch over to electronic media like we're doing today. Um, and in people having access is also another problem. Uh, some people just certainly don't have uh, cable or Wi-Fi service wherever they are living. Um, and they don't have computers. Uh, almost everybody has a cell phone, but as I've discovered, not everybody has a smart cell phone they can get on with. Um, so it, it definitely has been an uptick. And if, if you just look at what uh, the statistics have shown, you know, I mean, alcohol sales skyrocketed around the state as COVID-19 isolation began. And, you know, from personal experience, you know, driving by local liquor stores, you know, I mean, there was a point where there were people in line outside waiting to get in because they were restricting access. So, yeah, when it's people's solution, you know, they fall back to it. As we look at the past couple of months and look ahead to a potential second wave in the fall, is there anything that you and other professionals have learned that might make it easier for your clients if we do have a hard lockdown during that second wave that we might see? Oh, ab absolutely. Um, you know, the, like, like I mentioned before, this caught everybody by surprise, particularly for those of us that rely on um, a lot of personal interaction and activities. You know, at Hope and Recovery, we have a lot of meetings, but we also have a lot of recreational activities that people participate in and they get outside. They, <clears throat> excuse me, um, they rely on those personal interactions that we develop here in those relationships. Um, I think we're going to be better prepared this time. We have uh, grants that we've submitted to provide funds to be able to provide people with uh, funding to support their phone service during this type of time. Um, we actually have provided some cell phones on a loan basis to people that actually didn't have cell phone service. Um, they were very reliant on coming into the center for that support. Um, and when we had to close the doors, you know, that was completely lost and they had no way to contact uh, other people. We had no way to contact them. So we also um, had uh, people that are peers here that reside in, for instance, group homes or transition homes. Um, they had no capabilities to get onto Wi-Fi at that point. And so we have provided some of those or will be providing some of those places with uh, computers on loan so that the, so that the uh, group home itself will have a computer available so that they can do group meetings and, and interact that way. 
All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate your insight. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you very much. If you are in crisis, you can call the Idaho Suicide Helpline at 208-398-HELP. And if you need resources for addiction treatment, you can find those at 211.idaho.gov. Thanks for watching. We'll see you back here next week. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.